Hello, and welcome to the Technecast. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to round off our theme of archives, and with spring hopefully inching ever nearer, we thought we'd inject a bit of greenery into our proceedings and recently very foggy lives by combining the green outside world and the archives indoors. So, without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to today's contributor, Anushka. Sit back, relax, and I'll see you on the other side. A relentless arpeggio of five notes, the minor pentatonic scale, rolls and swells beneath my left hand. Slowly, chords build up, note by note, until the air is full of texture. This is the beginning of a piece of music called Journeys Real and Imagined. I composed it in response to a historical archive collection called the Miscellaneous Reports at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. My name is Anushka Tay, and I'm a PhD candidate researching Chinese diaspora fashion and dress cultures at the University of the Arts London. I'm also an artist and musician. For the past six months, I've been at the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew as part of a Techne partner placement. I've been researching the historical materials in the archive and economic botany collection, creating new work in response and curating an exhibition. In this episode of Technicast, I'll share some of the music which I composed in response to a colonial era collection, drawing deeply on my own perspectives as an artist and as a diasporan subject myself. Reports is a huge collection of 772 volumes, dating from the 1850s until the 1920s, and spanning European colonial reach across the globe. It represents correspondence between Kew Gardens in London and a global network of plants people, both amateur and professional. These papers really are miscellaneous in nature. They include letters, reports on expeditions, shipping notes for plant specimens, and descriptions of interesting plant-related objects around the world, along with requests to purchase those interesting things for Kew's Museum of Economic Botany. The collection has recently been fully catalogued and is now in the process of being digitised. This has opened up myriad possibilities for new research and interpretation of the collection. Interdisciplinary and collaborative projects have expanded the potential reach and usage of the materials beyond scientific botany and towards the arts and the growing field of the plant humanities. During my time at the archive, I limited my study to 11 volumes relating to China and spent the summer leafing through the many hundreds of pages. 
There were lists upon lists of plants, their uses and their potential profits. There were brochures of machinery and long descriptions of voyages across the wild, wild west of China. It was a tactile and unexpectedly physical experience as I delicately navigated through fragile folio pages, squinting at illegible handwriting and wrestling mentally with some of the opinions that I deciphered. I found myself unable to just brush these opinions aside. Perhaps in the name of objective scientific research, it might be considered prudent to pick out the botanical data and simply ignore the snide remarks about savages and the surprise expressed when local people desired a higher remuneration for their work, or the frustration when the native porters took hours longer than expected to carry all of the luggage across a cold field at night in the pouring rain, whilst the white man waited at an inn, writing his diary, telling of the day's itinerary. The comments were small but pervasive. The writers were obsessed with naming, classifying plants according to their taxonomy and attributing the botanical documentation to each other. Very soon I realised how few, if any, local Asian peoples were properly acknowledged in the correspondence despite the fact that the information being sent to the West would only have been gleaned through exchange and collaboration. There was so much ego here. preserving the documents in vaults of dry air. And so, periodically, I broke out and poured across the botanical gardens instead. I walked and gazed and thought. I brought my dictaphone with me and recorded sounds from around the site, from the wind blowing the canopy of trees to the rhythmic spurt of a water sprinkler, the landscape was heavy with sound. I connected this carefully designed garden to the historical documents and experienced both through my senses. So many of the plants commonly enjoyed in British gardens 
originate from across the East Asian region. From juicy persimmons to delightful flowers like peonies and even the so-called English rose. Chinese and Japanese garden design and landscaping was also very influential in Britain through the trend in Orientalism, which grew from the 18th century onwards. As I read the historical materials, then walked, pondered, then gazed, I began to realise that many of the plant species here now were introduced from East Asia by the exact figures whose letters I was studying in the miscellaneous reports. Through their words, I experienced the vicarious thrill of spotting some gorgeous flower, a sinuous tree, a tasty fruit. I imagined making inquiries, scouring the local markets in China, going on a trip and snatching a pine cone, one of thousands growing on a large tree in the autumn. They logged, packed and shipped the seeds back to Kew Gardens, then forwarded on an invoice for reimbursement of the delivery charges. I became those men. And yet, I'm not. Throughout, I held on to my sense of separateness. There I was, a person with Chinese heritage, sitting in London, reading the letters of European men sitting in China. 140 years ago, perhaps feeling dazzled, or homesick, or purposeful and driven to collect, to seek, to discover, and to pursue. Yet for me, the plants take on a different meaning. They are much more than captivating exoticism, or knowledge for the sake of knowledge alone. Rather, they are often embedded within community use, and collective memory. I frequently felt the tug of a connective thread between the Asian plants, the archival materials, my own research on diasporas, and my own memories, experiences, and family history. And so I went home and worked in my sketchbook, capturing my responses to the materials by painting and writing. I devised a process of call and response. The historical letters and Chinese botanical illustrations used inks, so I painted in my sketchbook using coloured ink, brushes and a dip pen. But I was not satisfied with paper as a medium. The thread kept on tugging at me. My words and colours wanted to come off the page and take up more presence in space. And so, for me, the next natural step was to use my voice to speak and sing and play notes and convey through music the atmosphere which I had been embedded in through this period of immersing myself in the botanical archive. turned my impressions of the scenes described 
into four pieces of music on piano and voice, using sounds recorded around Kew Gardens, my own poetry and some quotes from the miscellaneous reports. The pieces were designed to accompany an exhibition which I curated called Curious and Miscellaneous, New Work and Archival Encounters by Anushka Tay. In the exhibition, my creative responses and artworks are shown alongside botanical objects and plant specimens from across six of Kew's collections. The exhibition is formed of four themed windows, which tell of my interpretation of the miscellaneous reports. I aimed to create a sensory and tactile space, where the visitor is invited to listen to my music whilst exploring and learning more about the objects that have ended up in queue from so far away and so long ago. Artistically, I hope that I have conveyed something of the atmosphere of reading and researching the miscellaneous reports, binding through my views alongside the numerous voices collected within the documents. Chinese and European, recorded or barely present, hidden between the lines. Thank you to Anushka for such a wonderful piece and for an escape into Q for a few minutes. Following this, I had a chat with her about what it was like delving into the archives and to the leafy surroundings of Q. And I'm delighted to now be joined by Anushka. Hello, Anushka. Hello. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your lovely piece. Um, I wanted to start with, right at the start, once you played that lovely piece on the piano, you had the air full of texture and I was struck by that and your point that it was a very physical experience engaging with this archive. So I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about your working process changing texts into a textural, musical it must be quite an interesting thing to have to try and work out exactly how you're going to portray your responses. Yeah, I think for me, it felt like a very instinctive way to respond to the materials. I had been invited to work with these materials and these collections in a very generous and open-ended kind of manner, where 
the archivists were very open, you know, just to see what I would make of it, really. And they were they were excited to have someone to work with the materials in a very different way. That was really the whole point, because, you know, as I mentioned, the collection has really existed for botanists and scientists or for historians of botany. So it's kind of quite a, you know, quite a narrow field. And they really, you know, allowed me the freedom just to just to play around. And I think that through the process, I just allowed myself to be very instinctive throughout. And I would just work with the materials, look at the materials, you know, research around them with additional sources, and then write down my responses, almost through free writing or journaling or through free drawing and sketching. But there's a certain thing about being a musician and having sort of having access to music as a medium whether through instruments or through voice or through experimentation of whatever kind, where it it just feels very natural that there's a certain point where you just cannot express what you need to express through words anymore. And it's just something that comes out almost like an impulse through sound. So that's really it. I mean, <laughs> it's probably best expressed, you know, if you think about how um, the structure of a musical theatre piece might might work, for example, you know, you start off with spoken word and kind of quite, and just, you know, maybe more straightforward dialogue. And then at a certain point, people break out into song, for instance. I think that's the best way of expressing it, or opera. But there's just certain circumstances where actually you need to move into a less discursive space and play around with sound or just, I think, play around with an idea of representing thought, which is actually much more open-ended. And that was really appealing to me because also, you know, as, as a composer and as an artist, you can have a certain intention when you're making work, but it's always about what the listener or the audience, the spectator then you know takes in themselves and feels and reinterprets and that's always been something that's quite intriguing to me sort of the many different ways in which people will bring their own um, selves into a piece of work and then make more new meanings through it. That seems to link really well with what you were saying about not your inability but your feeling that you couldn't separate your subjective reactions to the texts that you were reading again, linked to sort of your identity, not necessarily as an artist, but your heritage and stuff. And I wondered if you could say a bit more about if there was a moment that you made a particular decision to include those, or whether those informed your sort of emotional responses in, into, the, into the music. Um, because it does feel like it's very important that you yourself are very much within the work. Yeah, I think so. And I think this is something that we are very aware of as arts and humanities researchers. You know, we're not playing with this idea that there's no such thing as subjectivity. Obviously, there is. And especially working with this archive that had been used by scientists, it's very clear straight away from the beginning that they were also bringing in their subjective opinions as well through the way that they collected data, for instance. So it's a very, it's a very familiar idea. And I also think that like many other, I don't know how you want to, to phrase it, but global majority or artists of colour or however you want to phrase it, you know, whatever mode is <laughs> okay wrong, um, there, people do um, get stuck in this double bind of you want to use your own heritage, your cultural heritage through your work, but also you don't want to kind of, it can also be restrictive, right? People don't just only want to be seen and labelled through their heritage as well. So 
because of that, I always had this awareness of it. And also when you are interpreting sources, it's not only your cultural heritage, but it's also your your day-to-day life and the country that you're living in and all of these other experiences that come into it, not only what might be deemed as his, his, your own history or, or your family's history, that's not necessarily coming into every single decision that you're making. Of course not. And so for me, there definitely was a moment where I decided, yes, I'm going to go with this response. And I think it was, um, honestly, it was in it was in collaboration with the senior archivist um, at Q as well. You know, she was very encouraging of the fact that the way that I was responding to the materials was was more than valid. And I think with that encouragement, I really, um, yeah, just decided to to go forth with it. I think even though even though there's this acceptance of the importance of the researcher's subjectivity, it's also very easy to try and fall into this persona of the researcher, the sort of slightly, that's slightly held apart from the materials or slightly held apart from whatever it is that you're, that you're researching because you're this kind of overarching eye that's looking over everything and kind of thinking about it. And actually, I, I made myself become more and more immersed with it and more and more connected to it. And in a way, that was quite exciting to me because with my PhD, which is totally different, I work with live human subjects, right? I'm doing interviewing and oral history. And I, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm working with lots of living people with opinions. And there's this, all this responsibility about how I interpret what they say and their voices. But actually working with a botanical archive of historical sources and the voices of people who are long, long, long gone, actually, it was this opportunity for me to take a completely different response so it it really did come from from the archive as well as with some encouragement (laughs) around me it strikes me that that's a really positive a really positive outcome but also the fact that they have gauged an artist like you said before you know it's a, a new way of looking at it that seems like a really good thing from from a sort of institutional perspective to engage with the emotional reactions and not just be an objective yeah, historical research centre. Would you agree with that? I think so. And because I did develop the work for an exhibition, what we found is that people that then came and saw the exhibition who were from a range of different backgrounds, you know, there were other researchers, but they were also members of the general public. And it really allowed them to then engage with the materials because there was this hook, you know, there was my own hook. And then I could convey that through the way that I curated the display and wrote about the text and then composed the music. And that really became a way to really open up what could have just been just a bunch of old ledgers, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, I was very intrigued by the fact that you said it was a very unexpectedly physical experience. And I wondered how you found that, if it was against your expectations, and then also how you dealt with the the scale. Because obviously, like you said, there were so many different things. It might have been difficult to know where to start, for example. Yeah, definitely. When you first went in and you saw everything, how did you plan what you were going to do? I found it very overwhelming. You know, there are 772 volumes. I'd narrowed that down geographically to 11, according to just what was labelled on the spines. But there were a few additional volumes that I did consult because, you know, they were they were referenced or they were mentioned. So there there was a, there were a few more as well. And quite honestly, it's, it's a collection called the Miscellaneous Reports. And it really is miscellaneous because it just contains all manner of things and not everything in it is interesting and one of the things that helped bring it alive was to do a lot of cross-referencing and cross-checking a lot across keys collections so the 
archive that I was working was text space. And the thing about Q is that back in the day, you know, in the 1880s, when um, all of the materials were sent to the institution, it was sent together, but then it was all split off into different departments. So there were objects and plant specimens held in different departments and then, you know, illustrations and photography and so on are held in different departments in the art department. So what I would do really also is um, try to find things that stood out to me and then try to see if there were other materials held elsewhere, maybe not even in Kew, but also subsequently, this is the way that large organisations or large institutions work, you know, things might get sent off again, or they might get lost. So there were lots of potential little mazes, really, that you could kind of go around little labyrinthine constructions that you could find within within the whole. And I think Again, because I am, you know, I'm an artist, I'm interested in people, what really started, what started to become more and more obvious was this idea of whose voices are missing and whose knowledge is represented and and how was it acquired. And I started following those little, little hooks. And so then that became really what the overarching theme was, is that, you know, there's this huge body of knowledge that gets credited to a botanical garden or a certain collector, and they were totally never working in isolation. They were always working within this whole network, but half of the time they didn't even list out all of the people that were in their collecting team, which is ludicrous because they there's absolutely no way that they could have, you know, traversed what might have been the wilderness or, or not. Maybe it wasn't the wilderness, it was perceived as a wilderness, but actually there were people living there. You know, they totally didn't do that on their own. They needed people to help them. And it also, I think you could say, why are you harping on about the past? But I think it's really important to know what it was like back then to see exactly how far we've come and how far the field, how much the field has changed. And I think just to take stock and realise in a way what we what we take for granted now and we're in a place now, thankfully, where indigenous knowledge, local knowledge is far more respected. It is a protected characteristic. And thank goodness for that. But actually, these are very, very recent developments. And it's quite important, in my opinion, to contextualise that more broadly so that we can understand that this is something that needs to continue to be um, kind of fought for and preserved, really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hopefully things can continue to improve. I wondered if you could say a little bit about when you had these, you know, inevitable emotional reactions to to things that were said, and you said about trying to maintain a bit of separateness as a researcher, but then also having to, if you want to get to know the person, you have to be a bit empathetic, and then you're going to disagree um, and allow yourself to disagree. It's quite a complex reaction that you have to process to get the most out of the text. Yeah, definitely. And you kind of have to hold a lot of different voices and opinions and contradictions in your mind simultaneously. And that is quite hard work, isn't it? Like it's literally it's cognitive dissonance. And knowing that people had different opinions in the past because it was different times. And on the one hand, yes, you can accept that. But at the same time, the dominant voices, you know, the voices that have been recorded are definitely not the the fullest picture so that's probably part of the reason why I ended up feeling very physical and in a way took me back to more abstract responses through kind of free writing or, or poetry and prose and then eventually back into music and sound. It just it felt like a way where I could convey this depth as well as breadth and the resonance of that. I, I like that sort of almost reflects the miscellaneous nature of the archive. Yeah. It's like your your response had to be miscellaneous itself, right? Yeah, definitely. And talking about separateness as well, you said about you felt those times when you had to leave those confines 
and go into the gardens and you recorded sound. And it felt like that was integral to the whole experience. And, and I wondered if you could try and portray what that was like, because it seems to me that there's almost like the, the gardens and the archives feel very separate, very separate worlds and how you managed to try and connect them. I think that's the paradox with any kind of archive in a way, because they are a preservation of, I think it's 20 years after a document is accession, then it can be made available in an archive. So they're always a time that is gone. And the way that, you know, you have to preserve documents to ensure their posterity, to ensure they continue to be available in the future, means that they have to be kept in very particular conditions. They have to be chilled, you know, they have to be in a pest-free environment and so on and so forth. So I think it is the nature of any kind of archive, no matter what it is really, that they are very separate from the living and social world that they are actually meant to reflect. And again, it's slightly paradoxical in nature, but I think it is really important to remind yourself as a researcher and to continue bringing the real world into the sources, even though it's a world that's gone, right? I was looking at documents from around the 1880s. It's a world that's gone, but there's still elements that you can make connections with. So in my case, because Many of the plants um, were sent from places from all around the world to Kew to the gardens for studying and planting. So then it was it was an obvious step to kind of break free <laughs> of the <laughs> air conditioned <laughs> study rooms and walk around yeah. and experience experience a sense of wonder. I think because that's really that's really what it was. You know, it was a bunch of people that for whatever reason were living around the world, a bunch of Europeans, um, diplomats or whatever job in the foreign office for in civil service for whatever reasons whatever circumstances and there was this excitement and this just real joy in a way at discovering all of the different plants and the ways that they were used all around the world now the way that they then subsequently collected them and, and maybe used them we might disagree with but it was this this sense of i think wonder and and delight at the natural world i think it can be very universal so i was so fortunate to be able to just walk around the gardens but one thing about botanical gardens is that they are now used as a kind of a pleasure zone if you like they are recreational but actually they're all about work and research even those ornamental and pretty plants they're, they're also there for a reason they've been very heavily researched so they're a completely a, a construct but they're very much a working construct if, if that makes sense and walking around Kew when I was taking the soundscapes and so on with my dictaphone it actually became quite difficult to record some of the sounds because Kew is quite close to Heathrow Airport. So it's underneath a lot of flight zones, obviously. And most, you know, I was trying to take like lovely recordings of wind blowing through the leaves of all the lovely trees and ducks honking and all of these nice bucolic sounds. But actually, most of my recordings outside were completely interrupted by, by planes right loads of white noise and there's a couple of sounds that I used to kind of light touch in the end but there's a couple of sounds that I really liked and one was the spurt of a water sprinkler and another one was a very rhythmic patter of rain dropping off a gutter that was actually outside the archive building and again those are kind of they're not really naturalistic sounds in a way right because rain dropping off a gutter and a water sprinkler that's controlled by electricity that's kind of a constructed sound as well. And 
in a way that was kind of good because this idea of a garden being this romanticized and, and bucolic space is, is completely false. So there was a bit of frustration there, but actually it kind of made sense. And I had to find ways of using the sounds in, in different ways. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you like to think that these places will, you know, endure, obviously, but they are going to have to be more and more integrated into modern society, for want of a better term. And it will be interesting to see how they are used and, and preserved going forward as technology develops. But I thought I wanted to end thinking about this sense of wonder by asking you about this idea of collective memory, which is something that I, I'm looking at myself as well. And obviously, you've been looking at an archive and we have collective memories and texts and, and stories. But it being in the natural world is a really, well, wonderful but very interesting idea. Could you say a little bit more about how that collective memory exists in the in the garden or the, the plants themselves? I think that the collective memory comes through in knowledge of plants and knowledge of what they mean and how they're used and how people view them. And I think most obviously it's that the people um, who wrote the documents in the miscellaneous reports, they obviously got the knowledge from somewhere. They, they talked to people around them about what this was, what that was, collected the seeds and the fruits and sent them back for further research and documentation. But the collective memory is something that I've definitely experienced in relation to plants and directly in relation to Kew, because just going around the gardens, going around the hothouses, the glass houses. And seeing plants that have been collected from Southeast Asia and seeing fruits and, and so on and so forth, or fruit trees and, and shrubs, that would always make me remember these long childhood summers that I had spent in the 1990s in rural Malaysia. And it was always just this sense of amazement that I could see a palm tree grown in freezing cold London or a coffee plant. I remember that from being very little and I felt the same thing when I was reading the miscellaneous reports and I would read reports written about fruit trees planted in Taiwan for example or the kind of fruits that writer had found in a market for instance and that was you know describing it this is juicy this is astringent this is tasty this is used in medicinal purposes and it and it always made me tap back into there's something about markets markets are such as just a wonderful place the world over it's this big cacophony and there, there was lots of allusion to markets in the miscellaneous reports but maybe more in the margins so I think that was one of the things that made it exciting to me in in a way because I had this rhyming of experience with these European foreigners across East Asia who were seeing all of these delicious fruits and were, and were so excited by them. And I could remember feeling that way. And I could remember, you know, I grew up in London. I'm British, but I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia with my grandma when I was little. Childcare reasons. My mum was a working mother and she needed help over the six week summer holidays. And so I might go back to Malaysia with my grandma. And I remember that sense of childlike wonder. And I think even though our society today, you know, completely globalised, globalised trade has, it's there, it's happened largely as a result of these Victorians in the miscellaneous reports, to be honest with you. And that's kind of fascinating as well. There's so much rhyming of experience. But despite the fact that, especially with the internet, maybe we feel like we've seen it all, we know it all. Actually, when you really experience something physically and kind of give in to the emotional resonances, the, the sense, the textures, the touch, 
it's something absolutely, absolutely amazing. So it definitely requires a lot of imagination to work with an archive. And the more imagination you can bring into it, the richer an experience that you will eventually have. Yeah, it just strikes me that it's really great that you were able to experience the archive and the gardens almost simultaneously. Yeah. Sounds like that was really beneficial. Well, thank you very much for joining us and the best of luck with the continuation of your research. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you once again to Anushka and to all of our contributors on archives. Our next theme, which you can look out for, is going to be on life writing. And it's not just Chelsea who have had a busy January transfer window. We also have brought in some new recruits, so I'd like to formally welcome Morag Thomas, Olivia Ahrens and Izzy Sykes to the team. And to say that Julia, who will be doing one more episode in the short term, is moving upstairs into a a director of football type role more overseeing operations and lending advice when possible. Thank you to everyone once again who came and said hello at the Congress. It was pretty mad, wasn't it? But I hope we all enjoyed it. And we look forward to hearing more of your research as the year progresses. We're currently very interested in hearing from anyone who would be interested in talking to us about senses. Right, that's it from me. I hope you have a lovely week, and I'll speak to you soon. Take care.